This morning's scripture will be uh, Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. The seventh angel sounded, and great voices in heaven followed, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. The twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God's throne fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath came, as did the time for the dead to be judged, and to give your bondservants, the prophets, their reward, as well as to the saints and those who fear your name, to the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. God's temple that is in heaven was opened, and the ark of the Lord's covenant was seen in his temple. Lightning, sounds, thunders, an earthquake, and great hail followed. So I've got uh, good news and bad news. Um, I'll give you the good news first. I was reading this week a discussion among psychologists about the effects of wearing masks. And they were trying to think through, like, what are the implications that, you know, we're around the country, all these, uh, around the world, all these folks are having to wear masks, we're wearing masks in all these places. What effect does it have on us beyond sweating a lot and getting your glasses fogged up and maybe getting little zits around where you're wearing them for too long? But what is the effect? So the one positive piece is, well, one psychologist, they're kind of drawing on old research on a lot of different areas, but, but one group of psychologists would talk about, well, one of the effects of wearing masks is it makes us look prettier, that, that actually concealing increases attractiveness. It's the whole tradition of wearing veils, actually. It's kind of the idea of in cultures that have veils, one of the things that the veil does that makes us look better. Uh, in, in film, I mean, the, the movie directors understand this, that, and actresses especially, they, they understood this. They want to look better. They get shadows. It's the shadows that conceal and hide, and it turns out it makes us look prettier. One psychologist was bold enough to say, if you have 50% less visibility, we, you're 40% more attractive. We make all these judgments all the time, and people are just assessing this, so maybe I should start kind of covering up here while I preach, and maybe there's an advantage of, of, of walking around. We're all looking prettier these days. Um, 50% less visibility, 40% more attractive. That's the good news. The bad news is masks have another effect, too, and this is where actually the psychologists were kind of just speculating because this is all kind of new to everybody, but that one of the other things they know about masks or concealing is that what concealing does is it, it allows people to fill in gaps. And, and some of the, the thing is when you are assuming, whatever you assume the mask represents, you may be more inclined to fill in uh, and, and understand. So, you know, the, the, the bank robber that walks in with the mask, the mask is representing threat. Uh, and so it actually increases fear for the person that's seeing the person in the mask. If they were unmasked, they would be less scary. Um, and for these masks that we're wearing these days, what we are associating them with is sickness. And so one of the group of psychologists we're talking about, one of the challenges of this day is that we're seeing people in masks, that every time you see somebody in a mask, what it represents is a threat of illness, a threat of sickness. So they may look prettier, but you may want to be further away from them because you may have this kind of innate fear that it's filling in. The, the, the key to the whole discussion, it was kind of fascinating little back and forth among psychology, but, but what they're doing is they're just talking about what do you do? What do you do when you fill in the gaps? 
When there's something missing, how do you fill it in? And, you know, really, this is what's driven a lot of magicians and illusionists that, you know, creates their entire career. An illusionist is meant to create some kind of perception and make us have some kind of perceptual error, that we read something into the situation uh, and, and then are fooled by it. So we wind up misreading what's there. Actually, we misread what isn't there and thus... Um, and, and enjoy the trick or you know, go through the illusion. Now that's in magic, an illusion is that's fun, that's the entertainment, is to find ourselves tricked or you know, find ourselves buying into the illusion. But it's a different thing when you open up Scripture. One of the most important things that we do as students of Scripture, as, as ones who want to listen to the Word of God and follow where it leads, is that um, we have to learn what to do with what's missing. In fact, I, you know, I heard a talk not too long ago that it was really all built around that the most vital thing for him, the most vital thing that we do in biblical interpretation is, is how we interpret the missing data. What do you do with silence? What do you do with the space? What do you do with the gaps? What do you do with what's not said? And that's important here in Revelation 11 because what I'm going to show you is there's something really big that's missing and how we fill in that gap, how we perceive that little missing point is going to be really important to understand not just Revelation 11, but I think it uh, increases our understanding of the whole of what Revelation is about. But before we get there, if you don't have your Bibles open to Revelation 11, I encourage you to do so. It's a little shorter text this week, but it's, there's a lot going on. And if you open up to Revelation 11, verse 15, you get this big moment. And really, it's one of those moments that we, if we're kind of reading along and studying Revelation, we should be anticipating because we've got these series of sevens. You have the seven seals, and now we've had seven trumpets, and eventually we're going to have seven bowls. And these moments that kind of build us up to this anticipation, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when we get to the end of this? And it's, it really, they form kind of checkpoints in Revelation that we get to the end of these kind of structural moments, and we say, okay, let's take assessment. Let's look at the big picture. What's going on? This is one of those big moments because we're here at the, seven tr- the seventh trumpet. Now, when, when, the, um, when the seventh seal was open, that was one of the things that we kind of followed for a long time. Jesus ascends to heaven. He, he's the only one that's found worthy because he's the one that, 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 was, that was resurrected. He's the one worthy to open this scroll. He breaks the seals one at a time. And then eventually, as the, 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 the seal, as this thing is starting to be opened up, the trumpets start blowing. Just remember, this is all just fanfare for what's coming. Um, but when he opened the seventh seal, what it said was that when the seal was opened that seventh time, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. There was rest. And I talked then, when we opened the seventh seal, it's an echo of creation, the idea of rest. But here... When the seventh seal, when the seventh trumpet is blown, what you get is not rest, you get worship. And what I want to suggest to you is those two things are connected. Worship is a form of rest. Worship is rest. Now that is a moment where I think we have to kind of assess one of the big ideas in, um, in, in Revelation, which is uh, that, that the structure of Revelation is kind of fractal. Now, if you're not a math guy, science person, fractal is not something you use every day. I had to kind of remind myself what it means. But the structure of Revelation is a fractal pattern. What is a fractal? The fractal, in a fractal, you have a, uh, the part uh, being a reflection of the whole. 
And so I remember there's an exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry where they talk about the golden ratio. And you can look at all these patterns in nature where they are fractal patterns where you take a leaf or a snail or you look at a galaxy, all these different things. But as you zoom, our crystals is a common place for this. But as you zoom in, you see the same ratio of the geometric figure no matter how far you go in, no matter how far you go out. The, uh, the reflection is, uh, the, 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 the picture is the same. So the little piece that you grab reflects the whole thing. That's what Revelation is. You can look at all these little, you kind of put Revelation under a microscope, which in a sense is what we're doing this year. As we look at all these little pieces, there's little moments where it becomes clear, wait a second, that's kind of a big idea that we're seeing again and again. We're seeing these recurring patterns. Well, it's because it's a fractal. That the part is a reflection of the whole. In geometry, it's gonna, the thing is going to look the same no matter how much you zoom in or how much you zoom out. You're going to see the same thing over and over again. So the seventh trumpet here, as a fractal pattern, is an explicit echo of the seventh seal. The seal was about rest. The trumpet is about worship. Well, worship is a kind of rest. What does it say here? The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and there were loud voices saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. There's worship all around this. And we've seen this kind of heavenly worship again, or before, we're going to see it again. But it's this moment where here, as the, the final trumpet is blown, we get this glimpse into the heavenly realm, and what we find is that people are, well, I hear heavenly creatures are worshiping. They're finding completion in God. I mean, the seventh day is about rest. We talk about the Sabbath. What do you do on the Sabbath? Well, historically, one of the key things you do on the Sabbath is worship. Worship is a form of rest. What we're doing right now is a kind of rest because we are resting from our activity. We're resting from being producers. We're resting from working in our own strength. And we are gathering again as God's people and saying, reminding ourselves, reminding each other, proclaiming to a hostile world that this kingdom is not of this world, that God is doing something in our lives and God is doing something in this world and we can't do it on our own. We are not going to be the, the, the owners of our own destiny. We need God's work, God's salvation only through Christ. And one of the surprises here really is that this, the trumpets, there's been a lot of negative stuff. There's been a lot of hard stuff time and time again. But um, here, and, and in fact, right before, the, the verse right before, verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So when this trumpet blows, we're expecting another woe. Right when you expect the third woe, what you get is an explosion of heavenly worship. Well, why? Why does he set us up there? Why does he make us think about the woe and then introduce us to the worship? I think what he's doing is that he is reminding us here that God's purposes are at work. That these woes, he's already described two of them. The third one is actually, I think, going to be unfolding here in the chapters to come. But then we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But this, these woes, all this negative stuff, all this judgment, this death that's really been around the last few trumpets, the woes are ultimately about bringing worship because God is at work. God's doing something. 
And if God is at work, if God's purposes are being accomplished, the ultimate end of everything that's unfolding here in Revelation is fundamentally good. Because God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. God is sovereign over all creation. And God is directing all of it to his end and to his glory. So here is this, when you expect more bad news, there's an explosion of worship. Well, what is the content of that worship? What's going on? Well, a couple things you immediately see. Um, they can worship, they can rest in their worship, ultimately because Jesus Christ is king. That's really what you see in the verses follow. I mean, the opening line, what do they say in verse 15? It's, it's all about the kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The trumpets are an announcement of a coming king. And that makes sense. That's what trumpets did back then. Hear the trumpet, the fanfare. That's the celebration of a conquering king or conquering emperor. They march into fanfare. The trumpets are announcing the kingdom of God. And so now here at the end of the seventh trumpet, we're kind of getting that clearly laid out for us. All these trumpets that have been unfolding, you can now go back and look at those first six trumpets. Say, what's going on here? What was this all about? All of these trumpets are about an announcement of the arrival of the king. God's king, God's, God's kingdom has come, and it has come through Christ. This is God's kingdom. This is Christ's kingdom. Notice they're both together there in verse 15. And this is an eternal kingdom. And in a sense, you think about all the way back to the cross, that when Jesus dies on the cross, that, that moment they talk about the, the veil being torn, the veil, the curtain that separates God and man in the temple, the, 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 the veil in the Holy of Holies. It, it is a separation. God and humanity have been separated in the garden, since the garden, because of sin, because of our rebellion. And now the cross has begun to tear that veil, opens up, this uh, uh, opens up the gap, tearing down this barrier. And now here, in this uh, pronouncement in verse 15, it's as if uh, it's fulfilling that moment where now it's opened up and we're seeing in full what we were seeing in part in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world, all that's going on around it. And usually, most of the time in Scripture, you think about an earthly kingdom, you'll hear that talked about in a negative sense. That's the world of Satan. That's the world of evil and sin and death. But now, this world, this kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. One of the things that happens in Revelation, throughout Revelation, is that you see a movement, things move from heaven to earth. All of this good stuff starts in heaven, and then over the course of Revelation, it comes down. It descends to earth, because Jesus Christ is coming to redeem this world. Uh, a lot of times, the way we've, I think, misinterpreted Revelation and maybe misunderstood what's going on, we think of our path as believers as a movement from earth to heaven. And what that can lead to is a kind of an escapism. Well, this world is a mess. It's all terrible. We just need to get away from it. Well, that's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is about a Christ descending from heaven to earth to bring his kingdom to bear. And maybe one of the most important things you can note about all of this is 
the tense of that word, the kingdom. This is not the kingdoms of the world, nor is it the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, but a single kingdom. I think that may be something just really to take note of. It's a vital moment because there are all this, we have this sense that there are a lot of kingdoms in the world. We live in a time right now where there's a lot of tribalism and national identity and local identity and racial and ethnic identities, and we can kind of park in a lot of these little identities and say, that's really my essence. I'm really defined by this. And you think about cultural debates about race and gender and all these kinds of things. It really is just thinking about in this almost kind of a a new form of tribalism. But here at this moment, he is lifting our vision of what God is up to. God is not building a bunch of kingdoms. God's building a kingdom, a kingdom of this world. I've been reading this summer a a biography of of Ulysses Grant, and several things have fascinated me about it. But one of these moments for him that was uh, fascinating in his life was when he actually becomes, uh, you know, he comes back into the army at the beginning of the Civil War. And he had, um, he'd been, you know, kind of essentially kind of driven out of the army some years before because of his alcoholism, because he got on the wrong side of a few key people. He had been floundering in his career, floundering in his personal life. He was really kind of a mess. Um, right as the Civil War began. But in that moment, people would talk about how it's like you saw this guy suddenly wake up. Had a lot of talent, a lot of ability. Had not lived up to the promise of his ability for many years. But he bought into the cause. And so he was actually then talking to people about the war and about the cause and trying to get people in Illinois to get them excited about joining the cause, being part of it. Um, But the problem that he had was, um, well, he voted for the wrong guy. He was not a Lincoln man. He was not a Republican. He'd been a longtime Democrat. Sometimes he voted for the Whigs. He didn't have any part of this whole new Republican movement, and so people didn't trust him. In fact, they, they, uh, the one barrier he had to getting into the army and getting a position really worthy of his training and ability was the fact that he was a Democrat in what they called a Republican war. Well, a lot of what Grant was doing in his speech-making and his uh, really kind of rallying the people was to tell them this was not a Republican war, but an American one. This was an American cause. He was lifting their sight beyond partisan politics, beyond the tribalism, to something grander, so, grander something bigger. Uh, and I think that's in a little kind of microcosm what's happening here we're reminded of what God is up to, that God is not about our little partisan fights and our little tribalism and our little causes and our little nations, but is in fact building a kingdom, a kingdom of this world that transcends all of these boundaries, that is building a a, a kingdom that will have people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all of that stuff that divides will find a unity in Christ and in Christ alone. It's a key, key movement, really, for the whole of Revelation, one of those fractal moments where the part is representing the whole. This is what Revelation is doing. It's what's happening throughout this book. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth, and, and Christ is reigning. And when he reigns, what he brings really are two things. He brings judgment and justice. Notice what the elders were back here in the throne room of God, and you have these 24 elders in verse 16, singing his praise, falling on their faces and worshiping God. So these 24 elders, kind of these 24 heavenly creatures, are leading worship now, eventually, 
It'll be the people of God. It'll be the church that'll be taking their place to lead this worship. We've seen the little glimpses of that already. But what do they say? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. He's speaking of the reigning of God, that, that Christ is now starting his reign. It's happening now. You've started to rule. And then you hear a deliberate echo from Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Well, what's he doing? Well, there's this play there. The nations raged, but your wrath came. It's an unfortunate challenge of translation. They struggle over this a lot because the, the, maybe the better translation instead of wrath would be a word that we really would be uncomfortable with ascribing to, to Jesus Christ or to God. It's rage. It's the same word. The nations raged, but you raged back. The nations raged. And Psalm 2 will talk about the nations raging and plotting and all the evil that's going on in the world around him in Psalm 2. David can see all of that evil, but he knows that God is raging too. God's wrath will be responding. And in a sense, what's happening here in Revelation 11 is that, uh, that, that this moment, the seventh trumpet, is fulfilling Psalm 2. That the, the divine wrath of God is a response to the raging of the peoples, the raging of the nations, the evil that has gone on in the world, all of the mess that we can live with and see and observe and feel day in and day out. God responds. And He brings His wrath. And the reason why they don't want to say rage and rage, they don't want to use the same word, is because they just want to clarify what I think we understand, which is that what God does in response is different and better than what the nations do. That what God does in response is bring a rage that isn't irrational, and it isn't just destroying for the sake of destroying, and it isn't destroying for selfish ends or selfish purposes, and it isn't destroying out of some kind of hate or disgust or just, you know, explosion of wrath that just kind of bleeds all over the place, kind of the stuff we see day in and day out these days. It's none of that, but that God's judgment here is purposeful, it's just, it's proportionate, and it's bringing life. The judgment that brings resurrection. Even as he destroys the destroyers, you hear that, that justice there. He's destroying those who need to be destroyed. But what he does as he brings this judgment is bring life. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. Some will make the connection there in verse 16, or I'm sorry, verse 18, that that, that, that judgment there in that sentence is actually a positive thing. That, that the, the, the time for the dead to be judged is a time to reward the servants. Where we've seen the dead described already in Revelation, it's the martyrs who have been crying out, How long, O Lord? When will you vindicate our unjust treatment? And it's here, now. They'll be vindicated. So this time for the dead to be judged is a rewarding of the servants. It's the prophets and the saints and all those who fear God. So there is this judgment and justice as God restores his kingdom 
and where God does justice and God reigns, there is a restoration. He's rebuilding his world, and the extent of that is the kingdom of the world. God's interest is everything. God wants to restore the whole thing. And so what it does is it produces a victorious church. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Well, what's God's temple throughout Revelation? It's, it's the church. Again and again, it's the church. It's God's people. And you see the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant is a symbol of God's presence. So the people of God are there with God, with God's presence. And where God is present, you see the, the, the mark of his presence there at the end in verse, verse 19. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. And that's the kind of stuff that you see all the time when God is present in the Old Testament. God is present among his people. He is restoring not just his people, but restoring this world. God is doing something. And that's where you get to that missing piece. Go all the way back to verse 17. What does he say? He says, we give thanks to you. What the, the elders say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And something's missing there. Because that's a refrain that we've seen a lot already. We've seen it several times. But we hear a different refrain. What we see God described is who was, who is, who is to come. There is no is to come here. There's no future here in verse 17. And that is deliberate. They're not just, they didn't forget about it or in a hurry and moved past it. No, this is omitted here because the future is now. The future is happening right before them. Christ has come and so his kingdom is here. Jesus will teach us to pray and he said, your, your kingdom come. He wants us to long for the coming of God's kingdom. It's an appropriate thing for us to pray. But here in Revelation, at the seventh trumpet blows, they're not praying for God's kingdom to come because God's kingdom has already come. The future is now. Christ has come. His kingdom is already here. And so our understanding of the future just radically changes. One word, I, I appreciate that it's uh, our, our verse this month, uses an important word. It uses that word hope. Talk about hope, something we need to think a lot about these days. We want hope. We want to know that there's hope, that there's a time that this thing can pass, that we can feel some sense of normal, that we can put up those masks, whether they make us pretty or not. We'd sure like to put them down, take them off. We want to get back to our things that we enjoy about our life. There's a hope that we need. Hope, as a word, does not exist in Revelation. There is no time in Revelation where they talk about hope. Why? Well, they do talk about hope. They just don't use the word. Hope isn't in Revelation because hope is delivered in Revelation, in Christ. In Christ's kingdom being restored, there is no hope because the future's now, because it's already happening. Hope is one of those things that disappears, fades away, just as faith eventually fades away. We don't need faith anymore. We don't need hope anymore because we, of the present reality of the love of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, now ruling, hope disappears because the future is now. And along with that, we don't have to be afraid. The fear disappears. A lot of our struggles these days are built around fear. Fear is this dominant 
dominant piece of our world today. We are afraid. I remember there was the old Christian devotional classic called Heinz Feet in High Places where the main character, the, the name of the character was much afraid. I think it's the main character of a lot of our lives these days. We are much afraid. We're afraid of a virus. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of infecting others. We're afraid of our politicians. We're afraid of our government. We're afraid that election's not going to go the way we want. You're liberal, you're afraid of the conservatives. If you're conservative, you're afraid of the liberals. We're afraid of a lot of things, afraid of a lot of people. We're afraid of those who aren't like us, who don't look like us, who may not believe what we believe. Fear just dominates our cultural landscape these days. And note here in Revelation 11, there is no fear. Fear has been cast aside because of the presence of Jesus Christ. Because God's kingdom is coming true. Because it's coming to fruition. The fear of the future disappears because God is at work right now. And if we believe that God is at work right now, there really is no place to fear anything but God. We can rest in Him, hope in Him, and here in Revelation 11, we can worship Him, even here and even now. So what do you do all of that, with all of that? Well, I'd say, suggest three things, three keys. One, that, that we live in light of Christ's inbreaking reign. Now, that's a weird phrase. Uh, I've thought about trying to do something different, but I just want to throw it out there. Maybe it's weird enough that it might kind of help hook for us, that that, that the, the reign of Jesus Christ is breaking into the world. That, that with his ascension, he's already on the throne of heaven. And what's unfolding here in Revelation is a description that, that what is there and what is true in heaven is becoming true on earth. That Jesus Christ is establishing his reign. And if Jesus Christ reigns, then we as the church in the midst of a season where we are called upon day in and day out by everything around us and everyone around us to elevate our fears, our fear of the present, our fear of the future, that we as the church can note that Christ's reign has already been declared and we can live differently. Our lives do not have to be defined in fear, but are in fact can be lived confidently and joyfully in light of the reality of Christ's kingdom. We live in light of Christ's reign that is breaking into this world. We are part of that. Second, we participate in that kingdom even now. Jesus Christ's kingdom is about justice. It's about righteousness. It is about a people who are restored to a relationship with God, who then can live out that restored relationship around us. We can be the spokesman for that kind of life, for that justice, for that righteousness. We can speak and live in the face of fear, in the face of brokenness, in the face of a mess built around, really, our world is preaching day in and day out a kind of self-righteousness where we're to, to depend on our own strength, our own power, our own cleverness. And we can look at all of that and say, that's nonsense. We don't need a Savior in Washington. We don't need a Savior in Springfield. Because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And we can live confidently, joyfully, speaking a, method of, a message of justice and righteousness even now. Because we are participants in this inbreaking kingdom 
of Jesus Christ. Third, if that's who we are, then Christ's kingdom becomes our source of unity. We live in a divisive world looking for something to unite around. There are a lot of terrible things to unite around. I think we see a lot of that in our day and age. There's horrible things you can unite around. Unity is not necessarily a good thing. But the unity that we are called to, that is a good thing, is to unite around as being participants in Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom establishes the real basis for unity, for life, for vitality. It is who we are called to be, agents of his kingdom in this broken and fallen world. We are called to live lives of joyful worship in response to Christ's present kingdom. As we move through this, this is one of those break points in Revelation. I like how one, one writer put it one time. It's, he says, it's not I who test the book, but the book that measures me. So how is Revelation measuring you? How are you being tested by this book? In the midst of a culture of fear, you may be giving in to those fears. In the midst of a culture of disunity, you may be giving in to that disunity. And what I'd offer to you from Revelation is that we are called to live lives of joyful worship in response to Christ's present kingdom. We know that what's missing there is tomorrow because tomorrow's already here. Jesus Christ reigns right now. Jesus Christ is the ruler of this world, and he, he invites us as his agents to bring that confident joy into the world. We worship now because Jesus Christ has already won. It's never, the question is never whether he wins, but when is he going to finish the victory that he's already claimed? Live joyfully, live confidently, live lives of worship in response to his present kingdom. Let's pray. God, in a culture of fear, I pray that you will teach us to live in confidence. In a, in a culture that feeds despair and disunity, I pray that you will teach us to live with joy and in a unity that can be found only in Jesus Christ. Help us. Help us to speak of that, to live of that hope in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.